0: Luke 15, 1 through 3, and then 11 through 32. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He told them this parable, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after that one that is lost until he is found? And put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. And as, and as he was angry and refused to go in, his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, are you always with me? and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord.
1: We're going to look at six aspects of today's reading. Normally we we uh, touch on five aspects, but I I found another one in there that I couldn't uh, divide up. And unfortunately I didn't find a seventh. So, you know, five or seven are much Better biblical numbers than six. That doesn't matter. We're going to look at the aspect of the prodigal as being a parable of exile. Uh, many of you have read in the Old Covenant about the sins which Israel has committed, which have led her off into exile and bondage in a foreign and faraway country. And this exile we're going to look at as as an aspect of every person's life. That is to say, we all have a sense in which we have been exiled from normalcy, from things that are healthy. There's this vague notion in every man, that he is either far away from God, or far away from his neighbor, far away from his family, or far away from existence itself. That something's not right. There's a general discontent with the things of the world. That is to say that something's wrong there's a, a vague notion of something being wrong and something needing to be put right and the prodigal here in this parable is a sign or a, a symbol of that exile that is to say he, when he goes off into far country it's it's Jesus's way of explaining the what the effects of sin and the effects of the fall and so from that place of exile which is in every man we see a great need for return Uh, And before there is a return, there has to be two primary aspects, which we're going to look at in just a few minutes, uh, which is the need for return and also the hope for return. And those two aspects are necessary before the prodigal will ever journey back. This prodigal who's gone off into this far country and become destitute and hungry and impoverished, before he returns, there are two very important things that, should they not exist, he would never make the journey back. We're going to look at those as as being necessary aspects, not just of how people come to Christ initially in the gospel, but also how we recognize our need for God as Christians. So this message, although oftentimes we think of this parable as only relating to those who are far away from God, it's also those who are near God who need to pay attention to this parable. Unless this son remembers his father's grace and mercy and also that he will be received. Unless both of these are, are felt, his great sin and, and the effects of his sin and the great opportunity for mercy, he'll never make the return. And so as we go through this parable, don't think of it simply as applying to the sinner, but also think of it as how we approach God in those areas in which we are immature, or if we are, are currently unrepentant of, about them, we, uh, those areas which we need to sanctify uh, as unto the Lord. That is to say, as Christians, we have things in which we are still living like this prodigal from time to time, whether they be besetting sins or sins which we have made agreement with. All of these aspects apply to this sort of parable. After the return of the prodigal, of course, the father's reception of this prodigal is extravagant, and we're going to look at what that speaks about the nature of God's grace and how it actually disarms all of our fears and all of our good intentions of seeking to justify ourselves before God. This radically informs how you carry out your day-to-day walk, how quick you are to repent, how you approach God, how zealous you are to go hard after the Lord. To, to run after him, to seek his word, to desire to engage in fellowship with him by his spirit, to encourage your brothers and sisters to walk in grace with your family. All of it is based on your understanding of is God quick to forgive or is he slow to forgive? And, and the father's reception of this prodigal is Jesus's way of demonstrating his father's heart. And so we're going to see this as A helpful aspect of how the gospel really gets worked out on a fundamental level, on a practical level. We're going to examine very briefly the the elder brother who is a symbol of those who seek to justify themselves before God and who are, although they look like they are near God, they are actually far from God. And then from there, we're going to look at how all of this parable is really a picture of celebrating with Jesus Christ at, as we culminate the the message in the Lord's Supper, and so I would just encourage you, as you are thinking about this parable, which you which many of you by the show of hands that I had earlier, you've already heard this parable many times and and that actually can sometimes be a hindrance to receiving fresh revelation. so I just want you to uh take your knowledge of this parable and and let it uh develop let it. Uh, be expanded and and consider some of the implications and the illusions, the symbols that are in these passages, and then examine it within the whole corpus of scripture. We're going to look at how Jesus is actually making dozens and dozens of references to, to the nature of God's interaction with his people over time. And so I, I'm very encouraged by this parable, not only because of its great aspect of showing us the Father's grace, but also that it is being so dense, being so rich, it is a wellspring of deep revelation, which continually calls our heart back to love and faith uh, toward God. So let's take a look really quickly at the beginning of this parable. Jesus, in the first three verses in this chapter, is interacting with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are seeing that he's hanging out with the wrong sort of people, now, here in this context, they are religious leaders of the country, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. They're, they're two different factions of religious folk, religious leaders, who are in charge of various things like the synagogues and the temple courts. And these people who Jesus is interacting with begin to think that Jesus is sinning by who he's hanging out with, by who he's fellowshipping with. And this is, you know, although it's done in Jesus's day, we err if we think that, oh, well, this is just referring to, you know, religious people who are not Christians or who are not believers in Christ. We can be exactly like these Pharisees. Just think about it for a second. Imagine today if you had a whether it be you know, a pastor here at our church or someone that you know who's a very good Christian or, or what have you, and you saw them you know, hanging out with people who do the very pet sin that you think is the most important thing. For example, let's say it's a pastor and he's hanging out with some people who are smoking, right? Just think about that happening outside of a church. You know, most of us would be tempted to say, well, what's going on here? You know, we'd, we'd start to check up, we'd, we'd talk about it with our other uh, fellow Christians a few days later. Brother, I'm not gossiping, I just want to share this so you can pray about it. And, and then we'd begin to silently accuse the person of sinning because of their associating with people who we think are less desirable. This is what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing. They're saying he's eating with tax collectors. He's hanging out with prostitutes. He's, he's fellowshipping with people who don't deserve God's grace, who don't deserve fellowship and friendship. He's hanging out with homeless people. He's hanging out with drunkards. He's hanging out with drug addicts. He's hanging out with Democrats. <laughs> I like jabbing the Republicans every once in a while. Anyway, the point being that Jesus is doing something that they don't think is appropriate. They think that they do not deserve the fellowship of Jesus. And so they grumble against him, and Jesus confronts them in the form of this parable. He confronts them by telling them a story which is supposed to indicate to them that they actually are the ones who are far from God. Now, of course, Jesus isn't saying these prostitutes and tax collectors are actually righteous folk. He's saying that they're in need of God's grace. They are like these prodigals who are living, but these Pharisees are like the elder brother. And so in a very beautiful way, the the chapter of Luke 15 begins and ends with this picture of those who hold themselves as better than other people. You are actually making no progress in God as a Christian if you continually have this thought to yourself, well, you know, at least I've got a lot of things going on. And, you know, my life's pretty healthy and normal. I'm not like this classification of person. And in fact, Jesus, is, Jesus gives another parable at a, a different time about the, the Pharisee and the publican. And one of the things I think that's help, uh, helpful to remember about the, the parable of the Pharisee is the Pharisee has theology pretty straight now not what i'm not in the full sense of that that phrase that his theology is terrible but he at least says the right words in his prayer thank you god that i'm not like other men and we we do that as Christians, sometimes in justifying ourselves. We even say, well, God, this is only by your grace. But then we tack on a doctrine of Satan, which is I'm better than other people or my life isn't in shambles. Now, I'm not saying it's, it's not good to be appreciative of the fact that God's wrought his redemption in your life. But the point is, if you consider yourself as more deserving of God's grace, then you do not understand God's grace and so as the as we begin the parable, we have to see it in the context of Jesus' answer to religious oppression of those who are undesirable. So before the prodigal son goes and squanders his inheritance, the first sin that he commits in this parable is a disdain for his father's presence. This is so important to see it is not just that the prodigal son wished to have the things. But understood in the context of biblical inheritance, he is actually devaluing the life of the Father. And indeed, that is the central point of this parable, is that the Father's presence is to be desired over everything that could be given. Inheritances are normally received in our days, especially after someone passes away. And in that day, it was at least when the man, young, either young man or a slightly older man who is already married or about to be married was going to journey away and live somewhere else, and so this young man, the 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 uh, younger brother, shows a disdain for the father's life by implying that I wish you were already dead, or I wish that I was leaving. That's what it means for him to ask for or to desire his inheritance beforehand. The son here essentially wants the things above a relationship. This person who has been raised in a context of fatherly uh, love and grace, as we're going to see in a few verses when he remembers how his father treats even the servants, uh, this abundant father who has shown this child love uh, is disdained. And this child considers the only benefit that I would get from this person is the things that he can give me. And understood in the context or the parable, we understand that this is an aspect of the essence of Adam's sin itself. Adam wished to have that very thing which God said for a time was unwilling, uh, unfit for him to take. That is the knowledge of good and evil. And so Adam disdains God's good f- favor God's good pleasure, the garden which he established, the world that he had made, the wife that had been given to him, the role and sphere and authority of the dominion uh, mandate, which He was his. That role and sphere and authority was not enough. Adam wished for the very thing that he wasn't supposed to have, uh, and he, he asks for it early and he takes it and so disdains God's presence and we actually see that this leads to the original exile and that is the exile of our first parents from God's presence in their expelling uh, expulsion from the garden as soon as this sin takes place God removes them from the context of the garden lest they you know reach out for the tree of life and and be struck down and so Adam and Eve are, are spared through the process of being sent away from God's presence and so this prodigal goes into this exact same thing himself he sends himself into exile it's important to see that he chooses to ask for the inheritance beforehand and then runs from the father's presence he he breaks agreement and breaks fellowship with this relationship that he had been uh, living in verse 13 not many days later the young son the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country this is the important phrase by which we understand that Jesus is saying that this is a form of exile. This far country that is a phrase over and over again used by the prophets in the Old Testament to say to Israel, if you do not keep Yahweh's laws, if you turn from him and follow after other gods, he will surely send you away into a far country. And you will be removed from the, the land which God had given to your fathers. And so this Jesus is saying about this parable, this is what happens in sin. Sin sends you away from God. There he squandered his property in reckless living, verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. Whenever God is willing to or wanting to, Tear down a nation or to destroy a system of the worship of man in the old covenant he uses a famine we We know this takes place twice in in Genesis alone, uh, both in the time of Abraham and in the time of of Joseph and his brothers and And God here is you know executing judgments on lands. In order to demonstrate his glory and make it manifest, that's the exact same thing that happens here now, this son squanders his possession and lives in absolute what what the ESV calls reckless living, but you might think of this as uh, either substance abuse, sexual addiction uh, as as we hear from the elder brother later there's an element of prostitution here. this is just total uh total living without bounds without understanding of authority or moral relevancy. This is amoral living. This is living without regard to the consequences, whether they be the consequences for you or for your neighbor. Or that is to say, this, this prodigal has no regard to how God says to live in the land. And so he's living in this far country, living like one of them. And then he begins to see how he, because of his sin, has become like one of them this famine which uh, speaks of the the fruit of sin is a type of death it's a picture of death that that is the death of crops which will lead to if it's not corrected the death of society the death of the livestock the death of the people this is a Indication of what sin brings. Now, sin, because of its iniquity, that is the effect of sin, is not just a power, but it's also a judgment on sin. That is to say, God, when someone is an unrepentant sinner, their sin has a multiplicative effect. It compounds, it builds and builds. And the longer one stays in sin, the more deep. And depressing the situation becomes. As we're about to see, in the context of the people of Israel, this prodigal son is dehumanized. He's devalued. It's not enough to just say, oh, well, pigs are very gross. It's important to understand what pigs mean to the Jewish culture. He had been a son in his father's house. Now he's in a faraway country and becomes a servant. Verse 15, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country. You may remember that in the law of God, God promises the Israelites that if they keep His commandments and stay close to Him, that they would be blessed financially, and that they would be taught how to create wealth, and that they would be the lenderers and not the borrowers. Jesus is intentionally invoking that idea, saying that He, who was a son in a father's house, who who had blessing, who had uh, a righteous uh, indication of his his following of Yahweh, this very same son is now a hired hand in not a righteous household, but a household that's probably devoted to idols. And so this son hires himself out and is forced into harsh servitude. Now, I don't know if you've ever spent any time on a farm, but let me just tell you, of all the animals that you wish to work with, pigs are beyond the lowest on the totem pole. They are beyond uh, toleration. My wife and I were taking a trip a few, uh, I think this was about a year and a half ago. And as we were driving, we drove by a pig farm. And the pig farm was con- a considerable distance from the road. Let me just tell you that we quickly rolled up the windows. And I I was tempted to hold my nose and slightly cry. But it it is the most foul thing that I have ever experienced. And especially if you have a very large farm that's not set up properly for drainage and and sanitation concerns animals are dirty to begin with but pigs are very dirty and it's just the nature of of the way that pigs live and so these these pigs are not just a dirty animal but to the israelites they're considered to be totally unclean that is you're not allowed to touch them you're not allowed to eat them you're not allowed to work with them this this boy, this young man who had squandered his possessions is now forced to work with those very things which make him unclean. Jesus is trying to help us see this is what sin does to people. Verse 16, and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. Now, I, I think pods here are are a a word that just describes some sort of uh vegetable, right? And and so here he's you know giving these vegetables to the the pigs and at the end of verse 16 it says and no one gave him anything. Now just imagine this for a second, you're an Israelite and you're hearing this story, this this boy is in a far country, he's been living in total sin And then he is forced into harsh servitude, working with animals that he is not allowed by the law of God to even eat. And he is hungry, and he longs to eat what they are being given. And then... He sees that no one's giving him anything. This is all about food. His poverty has become so severe that he takes the most disgusting jobs. If you if you if this is hard for your imagination to consider, I would just encourage you to go on YouTube and look up this guy named Mike Rowe. Dirty jobs with Mike Rowe. Just watch one episode of that and you'll get sort of a sense of what's going on here. This is like the most disgusting job that that you could possibly do. His place among the pigs is a sign that he's become unclean. And not only is he unclean in this context, it's actually dehumanizing. You see, this man is hungry and his job is to give food away, give food to pigs. And yet he's a human being and he's being given nothing. This is an extreme view of sin. I don't think there's an easier way to get a feel for just how damaging sin is. This son who lived in a good home with a father who had uh, means and had a gracious attitude even towards his servants. This same son is sent out of the land by his own doing, spoils his inheritance, destroys the legacy of his father, and then becomes forced to work with animals that he's not allowed to touch, and then is in a condition of of starvation, in, in poverty. It's hard to understand this, especially if you are a young person, but receiving an inheritance is not just receiving material goods. It's also receiving a legacy. And so this is, it's not just about financial mismanagement or the effects of sin. It's about destroying your father's heritage. It's, it's about destroying those very things which were to be given to you as a stewardship to receive well in the grace of God. So this is what sin is. It's alienation from God, from family, from land, and even life itself. He's he, this This prodigal has gone through a series of falls, not just one fall immediately, but a series of increasingly deep and increasingly calloused sins. And the effects of this this man's sin are absolutely world-destroying. And by world-destroying I don't mean asteroids falling out of the sky, I mean the world in which he lives, the context in which he lives. And so this sin is seen as totally dehumanizing and that's what it is. We have a difficulty because of the the blindness of our own spiritual condition in seeing the depth of our fall. But this is what Jesus is telling us about sin. Sin destroys everything as deep as this sun has fallen this isn't the end of the story though i love the parables and i love when there's a turning point in them this would be a simple morality tale if the parable ended here imagine for a second that the parable just ends here jesus is telling the pharisees this parable and then you know the boy is there hanging out with the pigs and he has nothing to eat the end now if it was just that if that was the only part of the story, we would have nothing other than a simple morality tale. That is to say there was once this boy who squandered his inheritance and he ended up living like pigs, so don't squander your inheritance. Brothers and sisters, that is not the gospel. And if you relate to stories in the gospel like this in a moralizing fashion, then you have been given no aid of the grace of God. Think about David and Goliath, another cultural context story. Most of you have probably heard David and Goliath. There is this giant named Goliath. He's mocking the armies of Israel. And David comes up being a small boy. He trusts in God. He slays Goliath. You do the same thing. That is not the point of David and Goliath. The point is, Goliath is too large for you to slay. And there's one who can slay Goliath, and indeed has. And because of that, you can slay the rest of the many Goliaths in your life. That's essentially what goes on in this parable. There's a descent, and at this point, there is a turn in the story. There's a development in the story which leads us back to the chance of repentance. As I mentioned earlier, there's two necessary things for repentance to take place in this story. If either of these aspects are missing, then there will be no repair. The first aspect is the prodigal would have never returned home unless he understood the effects of of his sin, now you say, John, he's living with pigs. I don't understand what you're talking about. Brothers and sisters, the power of iniquity does not always become manifest to you. You do not always understand the effect of sin in your life, and indeed, most of us, because of our dead, the deadness of our condition, which the scripture speaks of concerning those who are in sin, we have no capacity to even understand our need, unless the prodigal realized where he was before and where he had become now, he would have never seen the need to return. Imagine if the story was just written like this, there was once a man who always lived with pigs. That story has no descent and therefore it has no return. There's just a condition of squalor. And this is kind of what it's like to be men and women. We we have been... Uh, born into this condition of a broken and, and messed up world. And so it takes the grace of God through remembrance to even indicate or highlight the very depth of, of our fall. There's a guy by the name of Peter Hitchens. Uh, he's the brother of the late Christopher Hitchens. Uh, I, I said I don't do this normally, but can I get another show of phones? Who's ever heard of Christopher Hitchens? Oh, boy. Um, Christopher Hitchens, if you don't know who he was, is an atheist philosopher, a late atheist philosopher, he died a few years ago, who, uh, was very, uh, involved in the the rise of militant atheism, so-called militant atheism, which is proselytizing atheism. That is people who do not believe there is a God who actively debate and war against and teach against the existence of God. And if, uh, if you've never heard of Christopher Hitchens, perhaps you've heard of maybe, uh, Uh, Richard Dawkins is another famous atheist or... um, But anyway, the point being that Peter Hitchens is a a well-known Christian philosopher and he's written a number of books that are extremely helpful for understanding some of the cultural implications of America and Britain as we turn away from our Christian heritage. And he writes about a post-Christian world uh, in, in the book, The Rage Against God, which is a response to a book called God Is Not Great. If you are on a college campus... People you know and interact with on a daily basis are disciples of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. They love these books and, and doctrines. There are uh, you, know, absolutely uh, intense militant atheists on your campuses. And you would do well to consider some of the arguments and be ready to make a defense against them, especially if you call yourself a Christian. In the book, though, Peter Hitchens references a work of art from a a guy named Thomas Hart Benton. And if you've never heard of Thomas Hart Benton, that's okay. You don't have to imagine this photo. Um, I'm going to show you this picture in in a few minutes. But Thomas Hart Benton made a painting called The Prodigal Son, And in art tradition, normally, especially the time of the Renaissance, it was considered, um, not, not disrespectful, but it was just considered something that wasn't done to take a biblical story and to reinterpret it in such a way as to say something slightly different. And what I was so impressed with with God's leading uh, over the last two weeks is I had never heard of this painting, although I had heard of Benton before, and it was actually our reading for the schedule and somebody sent me this picture. And it captivated me so much that I thought, really, this is, is necessary to consider. So what Thomas Benton has done is he's created a painting um, in which he explores the idea of the prodigal son who never sees his need for return and here it is this is an amazing photo uh, of a work of art that was done in 1940 and it is uh, down at the dallas museum of art if you ever get a chance to go to the city of dallas go look at this painting it's it's not very big but it is very important as we consider uh, those things which which are necessary to remember our uh, our condition. And we're going to explore this painting in just a little uh, a little, little, bit. Uh, Benton here is doing a re- reimagining of the story in which he shows us what happens to those who find comfort in their sin. What we see here is a man who's returned and isn't destitute. Remember in the story, the son is living in pig, with pigs. Here we see a man who's never considered returning. This son doesn't even need a robe, he's got a suit jacket, he's got a suitcase, he's got loafers and slacks, he's not poor, and in fact, he actually looks somewhat rich. In the 1940s, most people did not have a car. Some people did, it was a, becoming a larger phenomenon, but most people did not have a car, and if you look in the, the background over to the right, I don't know if you can see this, there is what looks kind of like a maybe a Packard or slightly old Ford, but it's a car. He's not arrived after a long journey back from a faraway country. He's taking a quick drive out to the country. Even though he looks normal, not all is well, of course, in this scenario. This man looks perfectly normal. He looks even somewhat healthy. We might even imagine him with this suit and the beard and well-groomed man as sort of a businessman. You can see he's got a hat in his hand. He's a gentleman. He's not a prodigal. He's not one who's been wasteful. He's one who's been blessed. The house, of course, is in total ruin, however. And in fact, Benton uses these swirling colors and swirling patterns to indicate the distortion of the the world that this, this man is living in. The father, the brother, and the servants, they're all gone. They're long dead. And the house is in complete ruins, and the land itself has been a uh, filled with the effects of this destructive sin. The fattened calf, which was to be his, has not been slain so as more uh, has just been expired. If you look in the bottom left, we see the skeleton of a calf who hasn't been slain and butchered properly and eaten and consumed. This is a calf that has died in the wilderness. And what Benton is trying to explore is the idea of a son who never returns a son who returns far too late. And the reason he returns far too late is he never sees his need. What we see on this this man's appearance here is not the look of puzzled pain. This this man is clearly not in mourning over the fact that his father and his brother and the servants are all gone and that he never received his inheritance, but rather it's one of detached ignorance. It is just simply an inquisitive, inquisitiveness he's just somewhat wondering if you see him stroking his chin he's just wondering what happened and so what Benton is exploring here is the idea of those who are blessed in their sin those who never feel the effects of their sin the prodigal son as a parable would be no indication of the gospel it would be no retelling of the gospel if the son never recognizes his need and the recognition of your need is a very great is a very great grace from God. That is the primary beginning grace as we uh, approach Christ. So the prodigal would have never returned home without the hope of being received, however. It's not just his need to recognize or his, uh, his need to recognize the effects of his fall, but also the hope of being received when he returns. Without remembering the graciousness of his father's treatment of the servants, the son would have never return. And in fact, we see Jesus gives us a little view into the reasoning of this prodigal. In verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, this is surely not something that arises from us, but rather is a grace. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Verse 18, Therefore, you you know that therefore is not in the verse but this is his reasoning process i will arise and go to my father and i will say to him father i have sinned against heaven and before you i am no longer worthy to be called your son treat me as one of your hired servants this prodigal who is encountering the effects of his sin has been given a grace of remembering the father's kind heart even to the lowest in his household So he reasons, if I return and say to this man, my father, who I know is a gracious man, treat me as one of your servants, then I'll at least be received and have a place to live there. Though he sees the possibility of return, the prodigal still does not understand the nature of his father. Although he remembers the grace of his father, he interprets it as a command to continue to obey and to earn a position. He says, I will earn my keep. Nor does he even understand the greatest reason for return. The greatest reason for return, the motivation at the prodigal's heart level is I'm hungry. But the motivation that the father has upon seeing his son is fellowship. And this is so central to the nature of the gospel. We do not approach God seeking to merely be blessed by him with health, with money, with relational wisdom, with friends, with a wife, with a husband, with children. We do not approach God just so that we can earn a place of blessing under his umbrella of protection, or even to receive things from him. But rather, the greatest aspect of the gospel of God is that God wished to be reconciled to have fellowship with his children. The father's response to this son's return is absolutely scandalous grace. It's hard to feel the effect of this, especially when we have heard this so many times. But here the father displays actual even more extravagance than, and wastefulness than this son had shown. Verse 20, and he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. See, he does exactly that very thing which he had promised or thought about. He, he comes back to his father, and then he says, I'm unworthy to be considered your son any longer. Let me just be a servant in your house. The first aspect that we have to see is the father is looking for his son. It says, if we go back real quick to this verse, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off. Remember that idea of the far country, the distance between the father and this son that exists because of the son's wanton rebellion. This father goes and runs after the son, even while he is still a long way off. And this is what God has done. That even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even while you were strangers and aliens and Without God and just in the world, God reconciled you to himself through Christ. Notice how quickly the father moves past his son's groveling. Think about this for a second. And in fact, this is actually one of those unwritten doctrines which many of us believe. We believe that after we sin, as Christians, we have to approach God and say, God, I'm sorry, would you please forgive me? I don't know if it's that healthy to often ask the father, if he will forgive you based on the eternal finished work of his son, Jesus Christ, by which he has nailed the writ of debts that you have on a cross. That is that Christ who knew no sin became sin, that you would be the righteousness of God. I don't think it's appropriate often to grovel. uh, Well, I don't think it's ever appropriate to grovel before the father because of our position in Christ. But I I do think it's helpful to have intentional times of repentance and acknowledgement that you have been living contrary to the promises of God, contrary to the way in which God wishes for you to live. But look at how quickly the father moves past the groveling of his son. Verse 21, the son said to to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, but the father said to the servants, he doesn't even acknowledge it. He doesn't interact with this idea or entertain it for even a moment. Now, what's so gracious is it doesn't look like he strongly rebukes his son either. He just kind of absorbs the moment and then moves to reconciliation. The father immediately turns to the servants, we're having a party. Now, this is what the gospel is. We do not clean ourselves up to earn the father's approval, but rather he throws us a party. And if you feel like that's wrong, if you feel like there's something that just doesn't resonate with you, that's because at a fundamental level, you have not understood the grace of God, which is completely free. Of course, it costs him everything, but it is free to us. Bring quickly the best robe, verse 22, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, verse 23, and bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Christians can barely read those words in conjunction with another another, lost and found without remembering that great hymn, Amazing Grace. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was dead, but I've been made alive in Christ. Verse 24 is a celebration of the return. And think about this for a second. If you haven't understood that the grace of God being free to this prodigal son, the prodigal son does not return and earn, but rather he receives a blessing which is absolutely undeserved. And in fact, just to indicate this and to to provoke the heart that is set on the fleshly way of approaching God, that is to earn God's approval, Jesus shows that the father in this story actually gives the best things to the worst boy. It's not just you don't earn a place. It's the very things which you have done are disregarded. They're set aside having been nailed to the cross. This is so offensive to the religious approach to God. And by religious, I do not mean the pure and undefiled religion, but rather the approach to justify ourselves before God because the worst performer gets the best things. A son who absolutely squandered his positions is then given a robe and a ring and a party. He's given a robe, which speaks of his authority and position. He's given a ring, which again speaks of his authority and his position in his father's house as a son and is readopted. And this father actually sees the return from exile as a, as a type of resurrection. This son was dead, but now he is alive again. Through his hatred of others, the elder brother exiles himself. We saw how the prodigal son had been exiled at the beginning because of his own sin, but here we see this one boy, the older brother, who lived with his father, and he himself is sent away from the father's presence because of his hatred of the grace of God. Now, in the parable, it's the grace of his father, but understanding the meaning of the parable we see rightly. The son is said to be in the field with the servants, verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Brothers and sisters, you can be near the father. You can fulfill the law of God externally and totally miss the intention of the law of God. That is to say that God wishes to have fellowship with His people. He does not approach you. He does not think about you. He doesn't consider you as simply, is he or she obeying my rules? Because if not, I have a hammer ready to whack them with. That's not the way the father approaches those who are in Christ. He sees them as children. And this older brother has missed the point of living in his father's house. He is acting like a servant. I have never disobeyed your command. But the elder brother doesn't see what he hasn't done either. He's never enjoyed the fellowship of the father. I never disobeyed your commands, yet you never gave a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. I think that's, you know, sometimes you can err by pressing too much out of a parable. But I think that's important. The idea here is we see that this, this elder brother, he didn't want to celebrate with his father. He wanted to take the father's things and celebrate with his friends. In many ways, the elder brother is, saying, is kind of tipping his hand. He's saying, I really wanted to be like this prodigal, but I chose to earn my position with you like a servant instead of recognizing the relationship that you want to have with your sons. Verse 30, he then does an unthinkable thing. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. He disowns his brother to his father saying, this your son. It's kind of this phrase that he's using. I think the ESV translators did a great job here when they, they use the phrase this your son to kind of invoke that this elder brother is throwing this accusation against the father. Not only was this elder brother someone who was living with and squandering your inheritance with these prostitutes, but now he's not even considering him as a brother any longer. He's saying, this your son. And then the father seeking to reconcile his children calls them back. Though his father immediately receives the son, the brother calls to mind the sin of the other. This is what we do when we become embittered towards God about the fact, well, this person doesn't deserve your grace. They're a wretched whatever. This is exactly, this is entering into that elder brother syndrome or elder brother way of life. Though the elder brother never left home, he never has been interested in the fellowship of his father. Verse 31, he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Verse 32, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. And here, moving past the elder brother, we see the great aspect of the parable is not just about the possessions, it's about a relationship, it's about having fellowship with the Father. And that is the exact fellowship which Christ came to restore to us. If you are convinced that God will utterly cast you out, that is, He, no matter what you do, you will have to live like a servant. You can never earn God's approval, but you can somewhat live under the shadow of his influence, then you do not understand God rightly, and you err in understanding the gospel. When you do come to him, he receives you according to free grace not according to your ability to earn it, not even according to your ability to repent. Remember, as soon as the son says to the father, I'm unworthy to be called your son, let me just be a servant, the father turns to the servants and says, let's throw a party. This is absolutely irrespective of the son's ability even to repent, although repentance being necessary for faith. When we imagine a God who is unwilling to forgive, we do not see him rightly at all. Now, of course, we do not earn this forgiveness, but rather understanding God, understanding the nature of God, seeing the God that Jesus revealed in his work on the cross, we understand God is wanting to forgive. The father in this parable is standing on, probably on the porch or on the property somewhere looking out for the son and upon the first sight of him runs towards him even while he's still far off. If we are like the prodigal and we return to God hoping to earn his keep in his house, we actually are maligning or speaking wrongly about his forgiveness. We're actually considering it to be something that is not a part of his nature. God's not willing to forgive. We have to earn him. We have to coerce him. We have to hopefully twist his arm a little bit to get him to be willing to forgive. Our God is a father who is deeply desiring reconciliation, forgiveness, and the restoration of fellowship. That is the point of this parable, is that the father here wants both of the sons to come to the party. He doesn't just receive the prodigal and then see the sin of the elder brother and then say, that sin's too grievous, you're out of here. No, it's the elder brother who keeps himself in the field. The father goes out to meet him. Remember, the father runs after the prodigal even while the prodigal's on the horizon. And here when the elder brother, the one who's caught in the callousness of heart, the religious approach to relating to God, it says the father even goes out to to reach the elder brother. These are the two aspects by which we see in this one parable, the kind heart of God. If God's adoption is freely by his grace, then how much more is it now favorably disposed disposed towards us, that is favorably aligned towards us who are in Christ. If while we were still dead and still sinners and still hostile to God, God reconciled us to him, then how much more will he persist us or maintain us in his grace now that we're in Christ? How you approach any aspect of life is determined by your belief of how God will respond to you. And do not think for for one second that this only concerns how you relate to God. Your understanding and belief about God and how God receives those who sin and how God forgives those who sin radically shapes how willing you are to forgive your friends, your family, your spouse. It radically determines how you will relate to your employer, how you will share the gospel, what you will emphasize about the character and nature of God, and how you will treat others. Really, loving God and loving neighbor being the the central point of the great commandment that Jesus says is really one command. Those two aspects, loving God and loving neighbor, are inseparably linked. Without receiving the love of God, you cannot love your neighbor. And seeking to earn the love of God, you will force your neighbor to try to earn your love and forgiveness and approval. How you understand the gospel is important to all of life. Now, really, this parable, of course, is about the fellowship of the Father, but I want to look very briefly at one final dimension of the parable as it relates to celebrating Christ in the Eucharist. This parable is not just about the Father, but it is also about food. And it's about food in this way. That when the prodigal is out in exile, he sees his condition, and he he desires to eat the things with the pigs. Uh, it's... It's, uh, it's absolutely disgusting to imagine for just even a minute to think about eating next to a pig or eating the same things as a pig. First, the prodigal says, I, I want to eat what the pigs are eating, but he fears lest he be discovered and then lose his job. He can't take from the pigs. Then in seeing the depth of his condition, he hopes to have bread with the servants. So here we've got vegetables with the pigs, bread with the servants, And upon being returned to the father's house, he not only is given a ring and a robe and received well, he's being thrown a party and he eats a fatted calf, a calf that was prepared for a great celebration. And he eats it in the presence of his father. And it says that it's a real party. It says that the elder brother, while he was out in the field, heard dancing and singing back at the house. This is an absolute celebration. And it's all centered around food. It is this exact warm reception that Christ had in mind when he instituted this supper, which we are about to take. Here at this table, we are offered something way better than choice meat. That is the fatted calf, which might satisfy our hunger or our appetite or our desire for pleasing food. That only satisfies the body. But we are given at this table something far greater than that, which is Christ himself, that very thing which can only Satisfy our souls. This is what Christ offers to himself. If you look at John 6, when Jesus uh, declares that if anyone is hungry, if anyone is thirsty, he will come to me and I will satisfy him. That is what we are being given in Christ. It's not just a place in a house, it's not simply the ability to be under the roof of our Father, it's also to be celebrated and to be received by his grace alone unto his glory. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, Lord, that you are helping us in this season to repent, Lord, not of just our bad deeds, but the way that we think about you, if it had, if it's wrong, and if it's not formed well, not, not in accordance with what you say about yourself. Lord, we thank you that you have given us by your son, Jesus, the greatest teacher who ever lived. This, this parable, which is so rich in its implication and, and the poetry and the language and the structure. Lord, we pray that you would create within us a deep hunger for your word, that we would be able to meditate on passages like this, and through them, that you would give us grace in order that we would understand you rightly. We thank you also, Father, that you have adopted us in Christ, that you've set us free from sin and death, and you've brought us into your family. You've caused us to remember the great favor and grace that you have on those who are in your house. And we pray, Father, that you would open up our eyes, even as those who have come to your Son for healing and for forgiveness, that you would continue to give us insight and understanding of those aspects of life which we haven't yet submitted to your ways, that you would cause us to be able to repent from the heart, Lord, we thank you for the wonderful grace that is, in, that is our portion in Christ that we will encounter at this table. Lord, we thank you for the high calling and the high vision that Christ himself gave in John 6 when he said to those who were at the, the feast that anyone who is hungry, anyone who is thirsty can come and that you would satisfy him. Amen.